Hello, listeners, and welcome to our interview segment of Down the Middle, a political podcast. We have an amazing interview for you. Super fundraiser Lisa Spees of the political and nonprofit fundraising firm, the LS Group out of Washington, D.C. Lisa directs multi-million dollar national fundraising efforts, including major donor events, PAC events, and conferences. Her client list includes U.S. Senator John Kennedy, Jeb Bush for president. She was director of women for the 2012 Romney campaign, former finance coordinator for then-Congressman, now-Vice President Mike Pence, and is currently on the board of Right Now PAC and is a frequent lecturer at the Women's Campaign School at Yale University. Joining Lisa is Charlie Spees. Yes, they're married. Charlie was named one of the most powerful people in Washington, according to GQ magazine, and has served as election law counsel to the Republican National Committee, counsel to the 2008 Romney campaign, as well as serving as CFO. He co-founded and served as counsel to the largest conservative super PAC in history. Charlie can often be seen on Fox News and CNN. Without further ado, here's our interview with Charlie and Lisa Spees. All right, welcome back to Down the Middle. We have with us Charlie and Lisa Spees, longtime friends of mine, new friends of the pod and new friends to Riz. Uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. So let's dive in. Uh, why don't you start by telling us how you were both first introduced to politics? Well, I'll start by saying that, oh God, I'm going to embarrass myself with this story, but I basically went to the University of Kansas. That's not the embarrassing part. I went to the <laughs> University of Kansas and I really didn't have a social life. I didn't get into the Greek life. And one day I was walking through the student union and saw a table that said college Republicans. And it seemed that they were really trying to recruit people, you know, very hard because it didn't seem that their table was that full. So they were really, really, really nice to me. And they were like, basically, we're going to be your new best friends. And to be honest with you, it all started from there. So it started getting involved in college Republicans and started volunteering on campaigns for years and just getting really, really involved. And of course, we see, I still am friends with a lot of the college Republicans. And to be honest with you, a lot of the my col- fellow college Republicans are now office holders. So it's really cool. So that, that was my start, Charlie. And I probably became aware of politics a little bit earlier than that when uh, my dad was the U.S. attorney and he got fired by Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and all I, so I was four years old at the time, by the way. So didn't know that every new president appoints new, you know, appoints their own U.S. attorneys. All I knew is that Jimmy Carter was a really bad man and that my dad was not happy with him. And so that was probably the starting point of thinking that, uh, you know, I was probably a Republican. But then it was interesting because. As I learned more about that, I went from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is Jerry, uh, President Ford's hometown. And a lot of them blamed Ronald Reagan for Ford's defeat in 76 because Reagan primaried Ford. And the argument was that he weakened him and then made it easy for the Democrat to win. So my Jerry Ford Republican family were not big Reagan fans. So it <laughs> took me probably until my more think for myself years in high school and then college to really recognize and appreciate uh, President Reagan's sort of sunny conservative message. Little spoiler alert on the, le- on the next question, but uh, what political party are you both aligned with? Very proud Republicans. 
Very proud. Uh, me too. And so is Riz, right, Riz? No, I am not a proud Republican, but uh, I'm also not a Democrat. I'm somewhere in between. So there you go. Okay, we'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Lisa, could you discuss what PACs are and how they've been utilized in campaigns since their inception? Sure. Well, PACs stand for political action committees. Um, and I'll talk about my experience with them. Um, one of the first senators I worked for, I was his national finance director, was Senator John Thune, who you probably see on TV all the time, always standing behind Leader McConnell. And once he was elected, we wanted to create a leadership pack. So basically raise money for an entity that he could use to help other members. Um, and, and I remember at that time, I can't remember what year that was. What was it 2004 maybe, or the early 2000s? At that time, what was interesting was a lot of the senators and members of Congress didn't even have leadership packs. So it was totally a new thing. And I remember once we started up and started raising a lot of money, we could therefore give PAC money to other members and, and other people who are running for office. And then other senators caught on and said, wait, I'm, I'm going to have one too. So just an interesting point that in the beginning of all this, when especially when leadership PACs started, it was a very new thing and not everyone had one. Now, almost every member, that, at least that I know of, not only as a pack, but then there'll be outside, and I'm sure Charlie will get into us into this, but then there'll be other outside packs supporting them and someone else, you know, so there's all these entities created just to help someone raise money, but obviously you can only spend it in certain ways or else you get in trouble with my husband. <laughs> the perfect segue. Charlie, can you tell us the difference between packs and super packs and how they're used differently? Of course, but I want to back up just a bit and remind everyone that only individuals are allowed to give money in politics in America to campaigns. So anybody, you know, an individual can give $2,800 per election directly to a candidate. Corporations are not allowed to give money to candidates, period. So if you hear that, you know, he's supported by the oil industry or something, that would what that really means is the people that work for some companies in an industry gave money to the individuals gave money to a pack and there's contribution limits on what you can give to a pack they're allowed to take up to five thousand dollars per year of personal money and then they're allowed to give up to five thousand dollars per year i'm sorry per election to a federal campaign so all of this is regulated and all of it is relatively low dollar in terms of, you know, in the political world, $5,000 is not a ton of money, but it's all publicly disclosed and regulated. So that's corporate PACs. And then there's leadership PACs, which Lisa was talking about. Both of those have contribution limits. And then there's another concept, which is called a super PAC. And a super PAC is, again, all fully disclosed. So you can see exactly who gave and how they spend the money. But the catch is you're, they're allowed to take unlimited corporate and personal money. So now you are allowed to get some corporate money into the system or labor union money. But they're not allowed to give money to candidates. They have to spend it independently. 
So this goes back about a lot of people think this is because of Citizens United. So, you know, out in California with you guys, it's kind of cool to say end Citizens United <laughs> and that sort of thing. But most of the people saying that, if you were to ask him what Citizens United said, they probably couldn't tell you. They would just say it means money and politics. But it's quite a bit more nuanced than that. And it's also a continuation of a quarter century of uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence talking about freedom of speech and money in politics. And so super PACs allow you to spend money independent of candidates to support them, but you're not allowed to coordinate your activity with them. And a quick story on that is I set up the first candidate-specific super PAC, which was supporting Mitt Romney. Uh, it was called Restore Our Future. And we set it up in 20, I believe it was in 20, we set it up in late 2010, but it was in 2011. And as soon as there were newspaper stories about it, Barack Obama and his administration, all the Democrats, screamed bloody murder and said this was, you know, ruining American democracy. Awful, terrible, terrible. And it took them all of about 40 days to copy it and do the exact same thing. <laughs> That's great. Well, I've, I've long said that the Republicans are better at politics. So there you go. So here's the million dollar question for, for you guys. So uh, what is both of your opinions on the current state of the Republican Party on Trumpism? and on organizations uh, like the Lincoln Project? First of all, I think the Lincoln Project, and I'll, I'll be very blunt with you, is an absolute waste of money. I can't figure out who they're targeting and what they're doing. So I've seen their ads on Fox News. As you guys can probably imagine, there is no other news channel besides for C-SPAN that does get turned on in this house. But, you know, I feel every presidential election, you have some sort of group, you know, kind of within your party, so to speak. Um, I think it's a colossal waste of money because there's no point to it. He's going to be our candidate. There's not a primary. I also am not sure if their message is just that they hate Donald Trump or if their message is vote for Joe Biden or, or anyone else is better. I can't figure out Lincoln, the Lincoln Project. As far as Trump and the Republican Party, you know, I work with a lot of members here in Washington, and Trump has been someone we've gotten used to. And you figure out, you know, how to work with him. It's, it's, <laughs> it's been a little different. It's been a little challenging. In the beginning, when he first came here, it was very difficult in this city. Nobody wanted to work with him. Everyone was like, this is never, you know, nothing's ever going to happen, going to happen. Nothing's ever going to get done. And then things started to happen right away. The Republican Party might not necessarily like his style, but he tends to get things done. And that's what I think people respect. So. If, you, if I hear one more time, he should stop tweeting. Like, the man's in his 70s. He ain't going to stop tweeting. That's what he does. But he does get stuff done. I also applaud highly the people that he has picked to surround him, whether it is Secretary Chow, Secretary DeVos, Ronna McDaniel, um, these 
People are all very accomplished and people who... Your former boss, Vice President Pence. Yeah, yeah, I used to be Mike Pence's finance director. Actually, a quick funny story. I usually don't work for members of, of the House. I usually do Senate, governors, or presidential. And the only House member I had ever worked for was a guy named Mike Pence um, because he wanted to meet people nationally. So I took him around the country. And one of the reasons was he was trying to decide whether he wanted to run for governor or for president. At that time, when he was making the decision, I also said to Congressman Pence, by the way, uh, my good friend Mitt Romney, if he runs for president, I got to be honest with you, Mike, I'm going to be working for Mitt Romney. It's just, it's very, it's a cute story. It's an interesting story, but it's also a story that you guys know. And Justin, I'm sure you're aware when you're really into politics, it's in your blood and you do it your entire life. And it's a really small, small, small world. So anyways, Charlie. I would just touch on Lisa mentioned the Lincoln Project and uh, it was the Russians. It was either Lenin or Stalin. One of them had a term useful idiots. <laughs> and that referred to people who would be out there spreading propaganda, but didn't know how they were being controlled. and. Most of the money that the Lincoln Project gets is from partisan Democrats who think that the best way to take to attack Trump is to pretend to do it in a Republican voice. So this is, President Trump, like it or not, has overwhelming support within the Republican Party. Every bit of polling shows that he has 90 to 95 percent support among Republicans. So th- this is a coastal elitist consultant creation to that is the democrats are funding to help push their message and some consultants are happy to do because it's a great profit making mechanism as you did you you mentioned the same stat on our episode last week he's gotten overwhelming i think probably one of the highest approval ratings uh in the history of the republican party uh, among among people in the party is uh, am i correct in that I, I believe that it's certainly in the, you know, quarter century I've been involved and I was very involved in working at the RNC for President Bush's reelect and on one hand, President George W. Bush's reelect. So similar time period. And I would say on one hand, the party felt a little bit more united yes. then. But if you look outside of the, and that was true in Washington, D.C., but if you look outside of Washington, D.C. to support in the states, Trump is stronger. So he has remarkable support and it's resilient to people that are very defensive about when you attack him, it only energizes them. Absolutely. Charlie, uh, we, uh, Justin and I have, uh, we're just discussing the Mitt Romney of the campaign trail uh, versus the Mitt Romney since. Uh, and we had previously discussed the same with Jeb Bush. Uh, what are your thoughts in relationship to the before and after of both the former candidates? And do you think that Senator Romney is planning a run in the 2024 election? Justin and I have talked about that Mitt Romney will be only as old as Joe Biden is now and that he seems to be setting himself up for something. So what is your thoughts on that? I am a big fan of both Senator Romney and Governor Jeb Bush. I think either one of them would be a phenomenal president, and I think they were both governors of their states. I don't necessarily accept that they're different people now. 
than they were when they were running for office. Uh, I think for Jeb Bush, the timing wasn't right for his campaign. He was, most people would say, the best conservative governor we've had in our lifetime. I mean, the reforms he pushed in Florida were fantastic, but that was not, you know, competent, uh, experienced political leadership was not what America was looking for in 2016. So the timing wasn't right there. Uh, I would note that a lot, you know, we're in a very polarized world where there's really harsh attacks on both sides. But I would go back to 2012. And if you recall the attacks on Mitt Romney of, you know, he hate, he was killing people and he was racist, sexist, homophobic, uh, hated poor people, didn't care about, you know, but <laughs> binders full, like all of these attacks. Put y'all back in chains. Uh, yes, exactly. Racist. Yeah. All of that. That was from Biden. So you're exactly right. You know, all of that, I think, inoculated our system for then when they did the same thing, attacking Trump. A lot of people were like, this is ridiculous. They say it about everybody. So I think there's the Democrats, I hope, have learned a little bit of a crying wolf problem about when you throw those terms around. The question you asked about Romney running in 2024. I do not think he's going to run. And the reason I would say that is because I don't believe any Republican can win in 2024 that is not solidly pro-Trump in 2020. So whether President Trump wins, which I expect he will, or loses in 2020, our base, the Republican Party, is going to want somebody that helped get him elected. And so the the there is an editorial page constituency for the principled, you know, opposition Republican, but those editorial pages don't vote. And that's not representative of, you know, where our where the Republican Party is at. I think Senator Romney has strong personal beliefs. I think he has good motivations. And I disagree with him with some of the things he's said and done recently, but I don't question his integrity or, you know, the sincerity of his beliefs. Yeah, see, I had a a completely different hypothesis on what would happen if Trump did lose. I think you're exactly right if he wins in 2020. My my thoughts, if he lost, was that there was going to be an exodus from Trumpism, if you will. Uh, from the Republican Party. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I just feel like even the most uh, you know, hardened Trump supporters in Congress are going to try to act like they didn't know him, and they're going to try to pivot back to more of the, the Mitt Romney style of Republicans. But maybe I'm incorrect on that. Two points on that. One is, if he does lose, I don't believe that he is ever going to acknowledge or Fox News or, or One America News, like his constituency is going to say that it because it was because he was too Trumpy. I think they're going to say he lost because the establishment didn't support him enough or because the fake news got him or it was stolen or there's going to be a whole list of reasons and there might be a little bit of truth to each of them, but it's certainly not going to be they're not going to acknowledge that it's because of some of his also stylistic excesses. I do think that, you know, I work with a lot of candidates at different levels and I do my best to caution people what works for Donald Trump 
is not going to work for anybody else other than Donald Trump. So what he does, if you are a billionaire with universal name ID that had the top show on TV for a decade, it might work for you, but nobody else. Right. So I'm personally close with Mitt and especially his wife, Ann Romney. Um, I've done a lot with Ann with her book tour after the election, which was very, very successful. Um, and I'm also involved with the, um, the Ann Romney Center for Neurologic Disease, um, which is at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I think Mitt Romney is one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented politicians ever. I cannot tell you how many times people come up to me now and say, God, I wish I knew that Mitt Romney was so cool. God, I wish I, uh, that Netflix documentary would have come out earlier. God, I wish I knew that Mormons aren't crazy. And because trust me, the Mormon thing was such an issue, it, 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 which, which was crazy to me. Um, I ran two things for the presidential campaign under Romney. I ran the Jewish outreach. And I also ran Women for Romney. And the questions I got on the Mormon religion, which of course, by the way, I had no answers to, were just the silliest things. But I also think he's misunderstood. For example, when the president considered him for secretary of state and people were questioning it, Mitt wants to serve the country, period. And I think people find that hard to understand and think that there's always an agenda behind it. I do not believe when Mitt was in the march last week in D.C. for Black Lives Matter, I, I, I think it was a Black Lives Matter march, I don't think he did that to get in the press. I think he actually did it because he believes it. He also if, if you study Mitt Romney, he follows his father very much. He has great respect for his father. And as you know, his father, George, Governor George Romney, uh, marched in the civil rights march, marches in Detroit. So I don't think that Mitt, you know, let's say when he voted for impeachment, it wasn't popular. It's just what he believes. And I, knowing him the way I do, I, I literally believe he just wants to serve his country and doesn't. And I, I don't think he has, I don't think he's doing anything to set up for anything in the future. I think he's doing things because he believes in it. I completely agree with that. And when he did vote for impeachment, and he was the only Republican to do so, that changed my whole opinion on Mitt Romney, not because I tend to be a liberal, but because I thought the press had painted him in, in a particular light that wasn't actually accurate during the election. Very interesting take. Thank you. So, so what are your thoughts on uh, the Biden campaign to date? I will say I was a little shocked to see in the past two days that they've raised a significant sum of money quickly. And obviously that's due to um, Obama getting involved. I think, you know, it's been a very bad couple weeks for Trump in the press. I think the polls don't look great. That being said, I don't think anyone trusts a poll. But I will tell you, I am beyond excited to see President Trump debate Biden. And I think that it, to me, whatever happens with the campaign and how they're going and whoever Biden picks, I think that it's going to come down to 
those two men on the stage. And I can't imagine Sleepy Joe being able to handle Donald Trump in a debate. So I think every day we're going to hear something new that uh, Biden's doing well in Wisconsin. Trump needs Michigan. Biden's doing well. in You know, it's going to go back and forth and back and forth. And I, I personally think this campaign all comes down to the presidential debate. I think it will be the most watched TV show probably in history. Wouldn't you agree, Charlie? Well, I agree that the time period around the debates are going to be huge, but also the time period around the debates. I am 100% confident that by that point in time, this will be a choice election. It'll be a choice between Trump and his successes and his faults and Joe Biden and his, you know, faults and also the people propping him up and their radical agenda that he's already embraced. So Democrats want desperately for this to be a referendum on Donald Trump and us never to talk about Joe Biden. And that's why he's, you know, hasn't left his home and doesn't do public <laughs> events, doesn't do press conferences, et cetera. Right. But he's not going to be able to get away with that through the election. Yeah, I've, I've actually said that um, I don't think it's going to be a referendum on Biden, but I do think it's going to be a referendum on just leftism in general. And and that could be the winning message. You hit a really important point, because if it's Joe Biden, who everyone says is a nice guy, I don't think anybody you know has right. any, anything bad to say about him personally. I think the point, though, is to win this primary and consolidate support. He's had to embrace the extremes of the left, and you're you know that's what it's going to be the choice between. Charlie, you recently tweeted about a subject we're going to get into and address soon on the podcast. How do you feel about how the social media companies are handling the political landscape? And what are the legalities they have to watch out for, especially with the coming election? Great question. And you could probably devote, you know, a five hour special series of podcasts <laughs> to the both practical impact and the legal intricacies and the legal grayers. But in short, I, I personally am largely in favor of free speech. I think the marketplace of ideas should determine you know, what wins out in terms of ideas. So it bothers me when social media companies, which really are a sort of public forum now, when they start censoring voices and, you know, as much as they say it's neutral, whoops, it look, it just happens to be almost always conservative voices who are either deplatformed or censored or the so-called neutral fact checkers add a little notation about it which is not neutral at all but coming from a liberal perspective now i also am a capitalist so they're private businesses and i understand it's a tricky issue in terms of whether a private business has to provide open access to people. Uh, what I, you know, a test case that I'm working on right now is a congressional candidate named Laura Loomer in Florida who was kicked off uh, well, Facebook, Twitter, all of the social media platforms, and then they followed each other a few years ago. And she 
has you know expressed she had a huge following by the way she had about three hundred thousand Twitter followers etc. So I get that you know the they may not I think it's incredibly unfair and but I promise you whatever they think she said that was offensive is not nearly as bad as what people on the other side have been saying. Mm-hmm. So it's bias, but. Bias moves into illegal, in my opinion, when you take a federal candidate and tell them that their campaign can't have a website. So, for example, with her, you've got, you know, Lois Frankel's the incumbent Democrat, and Twitter lets Lois Frankel have a free Twitter account, use it to raise money, and use it for that platform, and tells uh, Laura that she can't have a campaign account. In my opinion, that's corporate subsidization of her opponent. Uh, corporations aren't allowed to support one candidate over the other. So if they don't want Laura on, they've got to ban her opponent too. And we filed an FEC complaint with this argument that it's an impermissible corporate contribution to only let one candidate have access. The challenge is that the Federal Election Commission is not set up to move quickly. So that we we may win this argument someday, but it'll be a Pyrrhic victory if we win three years from now. Right. What about the international exposure element? Obviously, you know, when we're dealing with the broadcast media, it's sort of a one way, but the social media uh, companies have exposure to the international elements as well and populations. What are your thoughts there? I don't like bots and, you know, sort of if it weren't online, we'd call it AstroTurf, sort of fake support created. And I also don't like foreign involvement in our elections. And I, especially when you combine them and have foreign actors uh, creating fake interactions, I think we should crack down on that and do everything we can to ban it. I don't know the best way to do that, but I'd like, you know, anything that the, that the U S government can do or those companies can do to block foreign interference like that is you know, should be done. Lisa, like my father, you've been involved in political Jewish outreach. Uh, what is the state of this enterprise now? Has it been more difficult to reach the Jewish population via the GOP since Trump was elected or, you know, within the recent history? Well, first off, I want to say, and I, I'm not just saying this because we're talking to you, Justin, your father is a legend in the Republican Jewish community. There are a handful of those guys who started the RJC and, uh, you know, whether it's Ambassador Siegel, Ambassador Sembler, Fred Zeidman, Sam Ambassador, they're all ambassadors, Ambassador Fox, Ambassador Lou Eisenberg. Yeah, we got to tell Fred he's got to get with it. Yeah. (laughs) Chairman, chairman. He was chairman of the Holocaust Museum. You know, those guys are legends. Now, that being said, it's, it's interesting because I worked for Republican Jewish Coalition, RJC, for 10 years. And when we had our meetings, there would be 100 to 200 people showing up, which was very, very impressive. Now, there's 1,000 people showing up to meetings. They have so many people coming to these meetings, they've had to pare down and only do these meetings in, you know, So in other words, instead of having four small meetings, have one massive meeting in Las Vegas. So right there in itself, that that shows that things are changing. I will say this, too. The fact that George W. Bush was 
loved by the Jewish people. I think if I, if I'm correct, he's the first president who did the Hanukkah party, um, which is, as, as you know, Justin, the invite of the season. Nobody cares about the Met Gala. They want to go to the White House Hanukkah party. And for my mother, she wants to go to the Met Gala. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because she wants to buy more clothes. Um, so, you know, George W. Bush forever and ever was, you know, the, the Jewish president, this and that, and then Trump came along. And... And by the Jewish president, I mean, he's always, everybody pretty much acknowledged he was the most pro-Israel Pro-Israel, exactly, exactly. And then Trump came along, and Trump came along after Obama. And so to see the difference between the meetings with Obama and Netanyahu in the White House versus Trump and Netanyahu in the White House, just, just even looking at the, not even listening to what they're saying, just looking at you know, their body language and this and that. It, it, it was just amazing to see how much respect there is between Trump and Netanyahu. Then the cherry, you know, on the cake is the, the, the embassy move. I mean, that's something that Jewish Republicans have been voicing uh, concern for a long time. They wanted it to happen. Everyone always kind, kind of makes a promise that it's going to happen. This president actually got it done. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if in areas where there's a large Jewish electorate, he runs ads, or let's say RJC runs ads, showing the opening of the embassy over and over and over again. Um, I will say, too, one of the candidates I'm working for this cycle is Lisa Scheller. Lisa Scheller is a Republican Jewish woman running for Congress in Pennsylvania. She has an amazing shot at winning. But what's extremely interesting about Lisa is because she's a Jewish Republican woman, we have gotten calls from around the country of women who want to support her because they are desperate to see a Jewish Republican woman in Congress. Um, I think there's only been, and Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, even if you know this, maybe three in the history. So it's a group that is growing, but it's also a group that's very supportive of each other. And it's also a group that gets very excited about each other. I think Lisa Scheller being one of those examples. I would just add, I think it's hard to have a discussion about the Republican Party and uh, be and Jewish politics and pro-Israel, for which President Trump has, you know, been pretty clearly the most strongly now pro strongly pro-Israel president we've ever seen. But you've got to compare that to the alternative, and there's a real virulent uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel trend that we're seeing in the Democratic Party. It used to be that politics stopped at the water's edge and. The one thing you could count on was with an APAC event, all Republican and Democrat members would show up and we were united in support for Israel and the special relationship. That is not true anymore. The Democrats are will not go to things like APAC events, which are set up to show support for Israel. They, that's that's really unfortunate. You know, I'm partisan, but this is one area where I'd like us to be joined together, and it's right. too bad we're they, Well, what's, what's actually even more disturbing is not only do a lot of Democrats not go to APAC, 
they're now going to J Street, which don't even get me started on J Street. So that's that's alarming too. That's something alarming as well. Sure, this is a place where uh, Riz, Riz actually is with us. Yeah, I was going to say that um, as a former Democrat, at now now registered independent, this was one of the biggest things for me that that made me finally say, yeah, th- I'm not on board with this with this movement on the left. And and yeah, everything you just said, I completely agree with. So um, lastly, we wanted to know, and we, we touched a little bit on this for each of you guys, but what are you guys currently uh, engaged in politically? Well, I'll tell you the one project we're working on together is the next amazing senator from the state of Michigan, John James, African-American in his 30s. How, I always mess this up. What is it, Apache? Uh, West, I mean, I couldn't be more because I agree with Lisa. Oh, my God. I'm glad that you gave that answer because that's who, I, you know, if you were to ask who, I, I, what's the most sort of exciting candidate yeah. that people may not be aware of yet? John James in Michigan, who it's the one U.S. Senate race that the Republicans have a chance of a pickup in. Yeah. So it's a race that's consistently a dead heat. And John James is the future of the Republican Party. He's where we, you know, he is a West Point grad, then an MBA from the University of Michigan, businessman, grew the family business dramatically, hundreds of jobs he created in Detroit, and uh, is just a charismatic conservative that has grassroots energy for his campaign. He's running against a longtime incumbent Democrat who's been a career politician, yet as of a year ago, almost half the people in Michigan didn't know his name. So just really no presence. John, on the other hand, one of the cool things is the energy from, uh, from I guess, students, college, high school and college. You know, he would have an, he w- he'll have a rally and get a few thousand people there, which That's crazy. is right. hard to do, by the way, for a presidential rally. Right. I mean, forget the things recently, the big ones, but in like a primary, it's hard to drive people to come out and see, so, see a politician. But John James has that uh, energy. That is, yeah, I think we're both excited. He, one thing to note, he has outraised uh, Gary Peters, who's an incumbent senator. He has outraised him every single quarter. I mean, that, that is unheard of. I will also say this. I've worked for a lot of different people in my career, and there's certain politicians that have a, quote, rock star quality. I would say one of them is John Thune. So when John Thune beat Tom Daschle, I mean, people would go crazy for him. You know, he's this good-looking guy. He's very friendly. He's just kind of cool. He's young. John James has that quality, and he hasn't even been elected yet. I think the only negatives we get on him are, oh, this is Michigan. It's hard to win. That being said, if anybody can win Michigan, it's John James. I also have a bunch of other people. And with yeah. President Trump winning yeah. Michigan in 2016 unexpectedly, I think it's hard to say it's not in play. Yeah. I mean, we have, I have a bunch of other candidates I'm working on and a bunch of other groups. They're probably too long to list, but I would say not to offend any of my other clients, but that's the one I'm the most excited about. 
you you will be hard pressed for me to ever admit that a Republican uh, candidate is a rock star. <laughs> but, but but with that said, if I had to pick one, even if I don't always love her politics, it would be Nikki Haley. Oh my god, <laughs> I I love her, and my husband absolutely loves her. Um, I hear about her all the time, and I say it like that because. Everyone is like, when's she going to run? When's she going to run? When's she going to run? And I'm like, oh, hey, let, you know, let's, we got an election to get through. She's going to run. It's just a matter of what. The, the women I deal with around the country, because I'm still in touch, they absolutely love her. And I just, and I, just I would just say the, the reason people, I think, like her is because she was such, you know, she's had some moments both as governor as a strong leader and, you know, pulling, taking down the Confederate flag, for example, which as an Indian American Republican was not an easy thing to do, but I think most people would say she, it was necessary and she did it well. But then watching her as ambassador to the United Nations, standing up for American values, standing up for our interests and standing up for Israel and doing it so eloquently. It was such a refreshing contrast to the failed policies of the Obama administration. And I just, I think she came out really representing our country well. Absolutely. And she ticks a lot of boxes. It'll be exciting yeah. to see how that evolves. Yes, agreed. Rob, does that mean does that mean that you'll be voting Republican if she's the Republican nominee? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the speed round. We're going to have a little bit of fun with this. Instead, what we usually do, because we usually only have one guest, we have them, you know, knock out five questions. But what we're going to do here, because there's two of you and you happen to be married to each other, we're going to have each of you guess the other person's answer and see if you got it right. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go first. Oh, uh, he's going to know. And take the easy okay. one. <laughs> All right. So first question. Favorite bar or restaurant in Washington, D.C.? So, Charlie, what is Lisa's favorite bar or restaurant in Washington, D.C.? Trump Hotel Bar. Uh, you can. It, it's a pretty reliable place to find her on, you know, Thursday, Friday, late afternoon with a group of women. Yes. Oh, my God. I live there. If they, if they made the hotel rooms into condos, I I would move in. I would move in. I love it. I hear this very same thing from friend of the podcast, Paris Denard. He he says he's there all the time. Oh, I love Paris. By the way, I see Paris there all the time. I absolutely love Paris. Yeah, the greatest. So, Lisa, what is Charlie's favorite bar or restaurant in Washington, D.C.? It, it's got to be, is it Trump also? Oh, my gosh. Honestly, I would have said restaurant. The place I go the most often is Bethesda Bagels down the street. <laughs> I'm not kidding, but Bagels and Locks and uh, every few, probably a few ta- few days a week, certainly on weekends, stock up. So, and with the whole COVID thing, Uber Eats delivers from them. So it works out really well. Uh, so that's the, that's the, you know, staple. We're all Jews here. So we definitely can agree that we love bagels. <laughs> Charlie, what is Lisa's favorite national landmark? Probably Neiman Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> in in Dale, yeah, maybe the Chanel store, yes. New York. I don't. No, I would say the original Neiman Marcus. That is a national. By the way, as of now, that's a national landmark because they might be closing down, so it could be a historical site. Indeed, national treasure. We should say. <laughs> <laughs> At least, so what about Charlie's? It's definitely not Neiman Marcus or the Chanel store. 
if I had to guess, and I'm, I'm thinking of all the I'm thinking of the memorials in DC. I would say the Lincoln Memorial. I was hoping you were going to go with my answers and say uh, the Michigan Football Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're sticking, but if we're sticking with DC, you're exactly right. I would say Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, there's Stunning. nothing like Lincoln Stunning. at night. Uh, coming across the bridge and seeing that is beautiful. And, you know, especially these days, uh, reading the inscriptions are really meaningful. Yep. All right. So, Charlie, favorite campaign that you think Lisa's ever worked on? Uh, Mitt Romney. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I, I, I literally talk about it every day. And she's usually wearing a, now, <laughs> what, a half decade later, she's wearing a Women for Mitt sweatshirt or T-shirt or uh, some sort of paraphernalia. Yes. yes. Okay, and vice versa. I think one of the most, the one he had the most fun with was Jeb Bush's super back. Define fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't, I wouldn't have said that, but uh, I actually would, close to, I mean, it, that obviously was a good experience in some ways, but I also loved, I was counsel at the RNC for President George W. Bush's reelect, and just the sense of national unity post 9-11 and the understanding that President Bush was, you know, working to fight terrorism and keep America safe made it a really, for Republicans and obviously a winning coalition in the country, it was unifying and I really, it was a great experience. So Charlie, what is Lisa's favorite ice cream flavor? Well, I know it's not pistachio. Yeah, I hate pistachio. So if I want, if I'm going to get ice cream and don't want her to eat it, I, I get pistachio because I know it's the safe flavor. I, if I had to pick... Your favorite, God, I, I'm going to go like chocolate chip cookie dough, maybe. Yes, done. Who doesn't love that? And I'm going to say Charlie's is pistachio unless he's literally just getting it so I don't eat it. That'd be something to find out right now. Can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it be a combination of both reasons? <laughs> All right. Favorite place to visit abroad. Charlie, let's, uh, let's have you guess Lisa first. I'm going to assume it's a place she went with me. and uh, i go with probably india yeah loved it loved it it was one of the most amazing experiences i and i know that charlie's favorite place to visit i know because he wants to go back all the time and i'm like hey he's been there so many times israel this guy cannot get enough. I mean, it has everything. It's really, it's such a phenomenal place. It has shawarma. It has more shawarma. And just a brief story on that. We were, when we were last there, uh, what was it, September or October. So in the fall, we stayed at the Waldorf in Jerusalem, which is brand new. Gorgeous. And I don't know that I would pick it over the more traditional King David in the future, but it was... Uh, it's a beautiful brand new hotel that uh, is worth at least checking out. Anything they put on a plate there, I'm eating because it's always a list. Totally agree. Uh, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, we have yet to get Rob over there, but he's he's raring to go. It's, it's, it's on my list. It's on my list. By the way, Rob, go with Charlie. That way I don't have to go because I've been in the <laughs> inside. If I could stay at the Waldorf, <laughs> sure. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I, I was I, assuming that. Uh, Ambassador Siegel and Son put together a trip. Uh, I'm in. We can work that out. Great answer. Totally. Totally. 
Charlie, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for introducing me to my wife, Tiffany. Appreciate that very much. Oh. Um, and and please let us know where we can find you on the internet. Uh, probably for me, it would be Twitter, uh, CSpeezDC. I am not on the internet. <laughs> I'm not on the internet, but you can Google me and a lot of stuff. Will, yeah, I, I was going to say a lot of crap will come up. Um, but the LS group is, is the lsgroup.com is my business. That's my site. That's where you can find me. Um, but yeah, I always, I always tell people, Google me. Thank you guys so much for being here again. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, that wraps up another amazing interview segment. We really hope you guys enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun for us. Make sure to go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at downthemiddlepodcast on Instagram, at downthemiddlepc on Twitter, and at downthemiddlepod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. That does it for us, guys. Have a great night, and we'll see you soon.